Hey, welcome to Bedside Matters. This happens to be the podcast that addresses the medical issues that impact every single one of us every single day. And hopefully we're going to give you answers you're looking for so you can be more informed and also healthier. I'm Peter Tilden. I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, author of the just released book, Override, about discovering your brain type and how it can affect your life in almost every area. David just started reading it. I'm not better yet, but I think I got hope. So thank you. <laughs> well, hi, Peter. Hi, Anna. Hello, hello. And I'm also joined by Anna Vicino, who's also an author of Eat Happy and Eat Happy 2, two books that are chock full of grain-free and gluten-free recipes. So That's thank you for right. that. And Delicious they look food. Re- they look really good. They, they are really good. good. My wife, we don't, we're not a cooking household. My wife makes everything with a little bit of hate in, in it. And you can taste it. She hates doing it, so we go <laughs> you out. You grudge anyway, eat? You're but, that age, you grudge eat? Okay. I okay. grudge eat. Yeah. Um, so on today's episode, we're going to discuss how having bad dreams may actually impact cognitive decline and dementia. In our This Just Happened segment, Dr. Kipper is going to tell us all about a brand new app that uses artificial intelligence to hopefully help give more accurate diagnosis of skin conditions. In our Hey, What About Me segment, we'll be taking a question about the latest study on coffee drinking because there have been so many studies that are conflicting. This new one appears to be good news. Let's start with the bad dreams and the impact on uh, dementia and cognition. I don't, first of all, I don't dream. And the only time I dream is if I'm sick, if I'm really sick, which is really weird. And then I'll have a really vivid dream. Is that normal illness dreams? I'm horrified by this whole thing because all I have are bad dreams. I I think what they're referring to in this article are people that have more than four bad dreams in a week, people that have nightmares, and there's a slight difference between those. But you have to be dreaming in a bad way on a consistent level. I'm definitely going to count now. I'm going to start counting because I don't know if it's four times a week, but now that you said that, I have a benchmark. Thank you. Also, what's interesting about these studies is that this can happen to people starting at age 35. So this isn't something that just happens in the older population. So midlife, you're on board with this. I'm guessing the reason it has cognitive problems is because it's interrupted sleep. How does it compare to like sleep apnea or insomnia? Is it the same result? It's not the same result. Sleep apnea is a lack of oxygen. These bad dreams are, again, they're caused by an activation of the limbic system. The limbic system in your brain is where your emotions come from. And there are several substructures in the limbic system, but these originate in that area. And the limbic system is activated during the day, but in most people, it's quiet at night. Right. But in people that are having these bad dreams and nightmares, it's open all night. Like a bad diner. Like the portal to hell. So dementia, when you talk about dementia, how does it affect dementia? Is it because the interruption of sleep, because you're not getting cycled sleep and it's ruining your circadian rhythm so it can lead to a negative correlation? It's exactly that, Peter. And without sleeping, one of the things, or if it's disrupted sleep, one of the things that happens is that your brain increases cortisol production, the stress hormone. And that's a biologic reflex because if you're not sleeping at night, your brain wants you awake in the morning if the Tyrannosaurus Rex is coming after you for breakfast. Gotcha. And so that's the fight or flight hormone. But cortisol does other things. Cortisol not only activates you, but without seven hours, maybe eight hours of sleep a night, you're not getting restorative sleep. So cortisol gets produced during the day. You're more anxious. You're Uh. agitated. Also, when you're 
cortisol is released during the day and you haven't slept. Have you ever noticed when you're really tired how you will eat anything in sight, especially if it's in a cracker box or a snack bag? Yeah, you, you, you go for the carbs. When I was at the radio station sleep deprived, I would never go to the food machine if I was not sleep deprived. If I was sleep deprived, I would eat a ligament sandwich almost every day. <laughs> it was an unidentified ligament sandwich. While we're on dementia for a second, making a, a brief right turn, Something really interesting keeps happening to friends, I guess, because you reach a certain age and you get parents at a certain age. My wife's father has a bit of dementia and he's late 80s. And all of a sudden, over one weekend, it got really bad. And I said mm. to my wife, that's not how dementia works. It doesn't accelerate like that. I'm just guessing it's some kind of infection. And sure enough, it was a urinary tract infection. Every time he gets it, the dementia symptoms increase. We've had in the last month and a half, at least three or four people I know whose parents also have a form of dementia, all of a sudden got worse. And sure enough, every single time it was a urinary tract infection or a uterine infection. Is that that common, David? And it's scary when it happens. This is the first thing we check when we see this change in older people, because for some reason it changes the metabolic system and oxygen delivery, all of that, inflammation. But yes, urinary tract infections are often the culprit. So if you're with a family member, like you just described, and all of a sudden their behavior becomes a little distorted, they appear to be demented, the first thing you should ask your doctor to do is to get a urinary culture. Boy, if you don't know, and our friends didn't know, and just because we had an experience with it, it, sound, it doesn't sound like a connection, but wow. And as and, soon as it clears up. Yes, and and you give people antibiotics and they come right back. It's gone in the day. Yeah, they're back That's to amazing. where they were, which is nuts. So our second question is talking about sleep and your phone. And apparently the phone interrupts sleep. And if you have the phone even near you on the nightstand, it interrupts your sleep. This is upsetting to me because I'm, I'm a phone in bed kind of gal. What say you, Doc? So there are two kinds of people in their sleep patterns. There are people that don't sleep well because they worry. And then there's the FOMO group, the fear of missing out group that needs to be stimulated. So more often in the FOMO group, their phones are right there. Their phones are next to their head. And the phones, uh, over half of us sleep with our phones. So this is not an unusual issue. It's a very big problem because you mentioned, Anna, that the melatonin is affected. So melatonin is on that pathway to make serotonin. So if you're not making melatonin, you're not making serotonin. Serotonin is that mood and anxiety transmitter. So you're prone to being depressed. You're prone to being more anxious. And the blue light interferes with the melatonin. We make melatonin between about 11 o'clock at night and 2 in the morning, no matter where you are, no matter who you are. So if you're not sleeping between those hours, you're not going to make the melatonin. I think now with the anxiety and post-COVID, a lot of people are getting worse sleep than ever before. And I know I am because I'm, I'm in the same house all day long with the same three people. So my patterns are different. Everything's different. And when you said 11 to 2, holy crap. That, so nobody's making melatonin, like a staying up late, paying people overtime, extra wages, nothing? It's not happening? I'm, I'm making melatonin. <laughs> so I can't say nobody. <laughs> yeah, but can you make it after? It's a law. It says no, you can't make it after 2? Nobody I respect is making wow. melatonin. Oh, boy. Anna, what, what's yeah, happening those... here? <laughs> So depressing. We now know where we sleep. know where we fall on the Kipper scale right now. 
Anna, you brought up another point besides the melatonin. There are other, other health risks to having your phone. There's radiation exposure. We don't really quantitate that. There have been studies forever about how much radiation. And I don't know if you remember, about 10 years ago, there were all these studies that came out that said you'd get cancer if you held your phone to your yeah, ear. Yeah, your phone by your ear. So that's never actually been Whoa, whoa, proven. whoa, except for one thing, and I, I just want to bring this up. I always carry my phone next to my, in my pocket, my front pocket next to my, how do you do? Uh, and there was one night when I turned the lights off, and it actually was a lightsaber. It was, it was actually glowing for a minute. I'm just saying. I don't know if it was cause and effect, but I am worried. The, the radiation studies, it seems to me, that ship has sailed because everybody's got the phone. And just like when I was growing up, you used to see pictures of the CEO of a cigarette company on a treadmill smoking going, this is good for you. No one's going to come out at this point and actually say an item that, that everybody has 11 of that we sleep with that's next to our head is dangerous. Peter, can I ask you a personal question? Sure you can. What, when you put the phone in your pocket, did you put it on vibrate? No, that doesn't excite me. Nothing excites me anymore. <laughs> He's busy grudge eating. I can sit on a washing machine. I can do nothing. I'm dead. I'm dead inside. It's all. It's, it's that is over. That ship is so so far sailed. By the way, I noticed that the Apple iPhone stuff, the night shift, and the blue light that you mentioned, Anna, yeah, helps a little bit, but not entirely, right, David? That's kind of a tweak, but now, not enough. I think one of the takeaways from this, all these studies, is what can you do to solve that problem and. Remember, changing a habit takes a long time and a lot of practice. But if you create a sleep plan, this is a start in trying to break up with your cell phone at night. If you can create a sleep plan and try to figure out a time when you'd like to go to bed so that you can get seven hours of sleep, and in that sleep plan, the first thing you do is turn off your electronics. And you try to relax yourself, whatever that takes. If Actually, if you're in the FOMO group, you want to do some exercise, you need to activate until you tire out. If you're in the FOMO group, you're actually turning on the phone to see what other people are doing to disengage. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that's, that's the first thing I do. You know what's the saddest thing about this, and then we'll move on? It's, it's not so much us, but it's the preteens who are just so addicted and the fear of missing out that they're that engaged with their phones, and they're the ones who are disimpacting the most, I would guess, correct? I would think so, just from social media, just from the you know percentage of people that are on social media. And I think I read that they lose at least eight to nine hours of sleep a week. Just from right, doom so, scrolling. That's awful. Yeah, mm. yeah I, don't, I don't know, man. Locking that phone. I know in, at nights, sometimes I'll go in the second bedroom to sleep because I, I got to work, and then I'll be ready to fall asleep, and I will have forgotten the phone in the other room. And I get a brief stomach ache. And then I realize who's calling me. I'm making melatonin. I got to lie down. That was a brag right there about you making melatonin. I'm making melatonin. We get it, Peter. You make melatonin. I I think the second bedroom was a brag. (laughs) It was. I'm sorry. Not all of us have second bedrooms that we can go make our melatonin in. Just kidding. I do. I have a second bedroom. Wow. Check your privilege, Peter. Check your melatonin privilege. I got to have exact conditions like a bakery. To make melatonin, okay? Temperature has to be right. I have to be relaxed. Oh, don't tell me about temperature. Temperature ruins sleep for me more than anything. By the way, all of you, and Laura, you can nod too. Are we all in households where our significant other wants a 50 degree temperature difference from what you want? Yeah, good. David, yes. My wife has fans blowing, Arctic things blowing. She's going, and I go, it's winter. (laughs) Peter, we have yet to hit menopause. That's the problem. (laughs) That's true. I would like it to be so cold that like you have to put a mirror under my nose to see if I'm still breathing. 
because I might have frozen to my death. That's how so cold, cold I would like that it to I be. can use my nipples to hold a book. I don't have to hold a book. I can <laughs> just, just I can just flip, put it right there flip, and hold flip. the book while I read. Yeah, <laughs> it's so cold in my bedroom always. And then my wife goes, "When it's that cold, is it hot in here?" I go, "Hot in here." I'm wearing a or parka. she's like tearing the cover off. <laughs> oh my god! The dog has frozen in a position on the way to pee. He's like he's like a statue. I have to thaw him out. I'm looking up Columbia Sportswear on the computer. Uh, moving on, there's a, a new AI app. It's called Piction Health, developed by this woman who said it takes so long to go see a, a dermatologist. They should just be involved with cancer. They shouldn't be involved with skin stuff. So if this app can help identify some of the stuff. Is that an accurate thing, David? Because I know with my son, my family, we've sent you we've sent you rashes by phone. Um, See? Do they read well? Can you tell most of the time what it is? Or would an app be that helpful? The pandemic changed everything for us because right. there was that period of time. It's, and it still goes on because it's convenient. First of all, it is convenient and the technology works. We don't have to get in our cars and drive. And it's you can diagnose and treat in the same breath if if you're lucky. But if you think about all these different devices that we have that allow doctors to diagnose and treat people, when I was in, in my training, we had to create algorithms to for diagnostic reasons. And we didn't oh. have we didn't have CAT scans when I started. And then we would create a treatment algorithm from that algorithm now with AI. All this data is processed into international databases with pictures, with images, with treatments that go along with them. And that's only going to get better as this database increases because we'll have more information. But yes, so it'll save you time. It'll save you a lot of time. In other words, you put the rash in the database and it compares it to tons of stuff and gives you a shot. The thing that blew me away was... The University in London, the Queen Mary University of London, is using it to analyze blood for rheumatoid arthritis patients. But what it's doing is they're doing it what the response will be to treatment. In other words, it's predicting you put in all of the stuff. Like you said, when you were in medical school, you had to get all that intel and figure out what the treatment would be to get a certain outcome. AI now is putting in all of that stuff and running it, running it quickly and running it more effectively and efficiently with the world's database. That's the point. And also, this information is translated electronically to subspecialists. So let's say we make a diagnosis on Anna's rash, and we propose some treatment for Anna. I can electronically send that same picture to a dermatologist and say, did I make the right decision? And so it's incredible. If you think about these devices, we have a device that we can wear on our finger, the aura ring. You can monitor your sleep patterns and see how much deep sleep you're getting, how much regular sleep, when you fall asleep. For instance, someone drinks to go to sleep. This is very common in people that drink alcohol. And they will always tell you, boy, I, I fall asleep. I sleep really great. But when you look at their sleep patterns, they're awesome. in stage one sleep most of the night. You need to get into stage four and REM sleep to have restorative sleep. So they're not sleeping fine. So the aura ring gives us a lot of information. The the aura ring I found fascinating, and uh, this is a big brag for me. I got an 86 sleep score last night, which is huge for me. Um, but I have noticed when I have alcohol, it's actually helped to stop drinking at a certain hour, like to know that from the aura ring, because not only that, I've noticed that the, the heart rate variability goes down and the resting heart rate goes up when I've had alcohol. And I'm like, well, that can't be good. 
we want to go for a nice, calm, resting heart rate, right? Yes, and your sleep will put you into a nice, calm, resting heart rate. But if you're not getting deep enough in your sleep, even that's affected. And the cool thing about this AI too, the, the chance for people in rural communities or where they can't, couldn't get help before, if they have a phone or somebody has a phone or can take a picture of it, they can get, actually get access to a medical help, which they probably couldn't because they're in such a rural or a, a poor area or whatever. I mean, it, it's pretty interesting how that's going to hopefully balance out. The phone gives us a video component. So if you want to see how someone's walking, you want to see how someone's moving a, uh, a shoulder around that's hurting them. There, there are so many different applications to this. I'm curious, David, with your book, because your book's about genetics. I was wondering as I was reading about AI, do they put the, are they going to be putting genetics into the AI algorithm to have a better outcome? Yes, they're already doing this because uh, someone comes in with a genetic illness. They put all that information in there and they can track down who's vulnerable, who's at risk. We're already doing that. Let's get to, hey, what about me? We have a caller today, a listener. What's your question? Hi, Dr. Kipper. My name is Kimberly Johnson. Um, I drink a lot of coffee and I'm confused. Is it good for you? Is it bad for you? What's the truth about it? Thank you. So this question always comes up, cup of joe, yes or no? It depends a lot on the dose. So if you're, Kimberly just said she drinks a lot of coffee. That's okay if you're in the younger demographic. Older people have a problem with that. It becomes more stimulating. Coffee has two neurotransmitters in it. It has dopamine and serotonin. And the serotonin elevates your mood and relaxes you. And the dopamine is stimulating and helps you concentrate. So there are good and bad issues in different organs of the body with coffee. And again, a lot of it is dose-related. But in the heart, for instance, Coffee at a moderate dose helps lower your stroke risk and your heart attack risk. In a higher dose, it can aggravate an arrhythmia. It, can, it could provoke an atrial fibrillation or some oh. other dangerous rhythm. The brain also has some other interesting yeses and nos. Uh, a moderate amount of coffee can create pain relief for headaches and migraines also causes or allows for pain relief if you combine the coffee with a non-steroidal like Advil or Motrin with coffee that helps it augments the effect of the non-steroidal so there's a pain benefit the kidney if you have a moderate intake of coffee it protects against chronic kidney disease i have no idea why that happens but a negative is Bladder dysfunction, if you have too much coffee, your bladder goes into spasm, you know where that takes you. In the intestines, you can speed up someone that has an irritable bowel syndrome that's of the diarrhea type, so that can make that worse. It can make GERD worse, so the intestinal tract has some negatives to it. Interestingly, in pregnancy, if you are drinking a lot of coffee during pregnancy, you can have a higher incidence of birth defects and lower birth weight infants. So there's good and bad with this. Yeah, they the, told they told me not to drink at all when I was pregnant, so I didn't, and but we and then picked right back up. <laughs> and, and we talked about dementia, caffeine in any form, whether it's coffee or tea. There's actually more caffeine than there is in a cup of coffee. So 
you can get your caffeine in different ways. We think the coffee bean itself has value. What's in there are called xanthines, and those are antioxidants. So antioxidants help with inflammation. They're associated with longevity. So those are two big positives. So you think as far as the lowering the chance of stroke and dementia, it has a chance if you're, if you're drinking in that three cup a day range based on the, the latest study. Yes. It affects brain in a positive way. Yes. The thing that's funny in looking at all of this, again, the way we drink coffee and how much is getting back to your book, genetic traits, that it, everything seems to be based on a genetic trait. So you can't, every conversation you have has a genetic basis, which is we've talked about this. And that's one of the reasons you wrote the book, because you can't do dieting without taking into consideration the genetics, et cetera. And the same thing with your propensity to drink coffee or to one. I mean, I, when I dream about stuff, David, it's coffee. About three in the morning when I wake up, it's like, oh my God, I'm only a couple more hours away. I can have I, my first cup I, of coffee. I, it's like, I relate addictive? to that so much, Peter. Like, I think that too in the middle of the night, like, oh man, soon I'm going to get to get up and make the coffee. <laughs> and it's Danish. A, it's, the, it's the only time I feel sheer, pure delight right? and wonder at the world. <laughs> and I got to tell you, I don't sleep late. David knows this because I did Morning Raider forever. I get up at yeah. four o'clock at 4.05, man. I'm at the Keurig going, who's here? Daddy's home. Here's an important question. What do you yeah. put what do you put in your coffee? 17 sweet and lows and 35 <laughs> cream. So it's very healthy. No, what, I put one sweet and low. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> I put one sweet and low and some cream in there. Because what we put in the coffee has some right. effect on our weight, on right. our predisposition to things like diabetes and all so the, the other half of cinnamon I, bun I also put in there, but I won't do that anymore. <laughs> I could chime in here since I have several coffee recipes that are wow. not containing sugar. But I put in about a teaspoon of coconut oil and a half a scoop of uh, Nox gelatin. And I whip it with about half a cup of coffee and it whips it very um, into almost like a latte because the coconut oil is very fatty, right? It's saturated fat. And then I put some salt in there. What are you doing? And here's what it is. Because I'm if I'm not having dairy, which I'm not supposed to have dairy, because apparently it's a cross-reactant like gluten with the celiac. Long story. Yeah. We can talk yeah. about that on another episode. What it is is almost like a latte, but without any dairy. And the coconut oil is a nice way to fatten it up. I will tell you, if you put the salt in with creamer, though, it won't taste right. The salt is the hack if you're trying to go with black coffee. As soon as we're off, I'm running to the store to get coconut oil. Then I'm coming home to make melatonin. And then as soon as I get <laughs> up, I'm making my coffee at four with the coconut oil and the thing and the stirring and the, and the salt. So I, I just want to comment on the sugar-free products. Peter and I are sweet and low addicts. Yes. I don't, I it, I don't I, do I, them. I don't touch them. I think they take... If you guys like to have sugar strewed through dirty socks, then have sweet and low. David and I have walked into a diner together and pistol whipped somebody to get their <laughs> sweet and low. I'll tell it right now. That's how... I know what I'm getting you for Hanukkah. <laughs> so the giant and and Christmas. This show appeals to everybody. So the the medical point I was trying to uh, bring oh. up on our. Oh wait, medical you're trying to make program. a medical point? Yes, you I was trying. trying I'm not getting very far. Why would that happen? So when we have artificial sweeteners, we think that we're not having sugar, and we're right. We're having a form of sugar. It's either fructose or sucrose, but the brain doesn't see it that way. The brain sees this as sugar. So what we think we're fooling Mother Nature, we're not. So the brain reacts in the same way. Insulin gets released. There's several things that happen when the brain sees sugar coming in. So Try not to fool yourself with the artificial sweeteners. I'm going to expose a very 
uh, personal story uh, between oh. me and Peter. Uh-oh. We do like our sweet and low, and we often have breakfast on Saturday mornings. And one Saturday morning, we went to get our sweet and low into our beverages. Oh, I know. And we noticed, <laughs> we noticed that it wasn't sweet and low. It was in the same pink package. Oh, God. And we went nuts. Uh, it was... What are they doing? I, what what's coming? What was the name? Was knock, you remember the name it of it? Knockoff Sweet and Low. It was no. Knockoff Sweet and Low, but they made it look with the font and everything else. Everything. They picked it up. We look it up. and We go, wait a minute. Yeah, we called the owner actually to find out was this a cost saving issue? Was this yes personal? Was anyhow? So not only does it is it not good for you, but they're fooling us. And it's addictive. And speaking of chemicals, your brain has chemicals. You can discover your brain type why you do what you do, how to change what you do, what you do. And this you don't need Tony Robbins, guy who's going to have you walk on coals to change your life or do climb a wall, rock wall, or fall backwards and trust somebody's going to catch you or bed of mm. nails. All you have to do is get this book. You can save on the bed of nails and insurance by just reading the book. <laughs> it's called Override. And David's been really passionate about it for years. And we've talked about it when it comes to diets, et cetera. Why things, why the recidivism rate is so high and they don't take, they don't take into consideration your genetics. So the book Override will tell you all about that. It just came out. And uh, David, congratulations. Thank you, Peter. Very cool. Proud of you. Thank you, Anna, Dr. Kipper. Thank you, uh, Laurie. Appreciate it. And thank you for your answers and your patience and uh, for listening. If you want to follow us because you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, just go to bedsidematters.org. You got a medical question? You go to the same place because we're not paying for two sites. You send it to us and we'll (laughs) see you next episode. Why would we pay for another site? If you have a question for Dr. Kipper, you can go to our website, bedsidematters.org, and leave a voicemail or submit a question. The information on Bedside Matters and the resources available for download are not intended as and should not be understood or construed as medical or health advice. The information on Bedside Matters is not a substitute for medical or health advice from a professional who is aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends. We'll see you next time.